0: Chapter six of the story is going to be a story of Moses herding cats across the desert. There's another analogy I want to give to you, though, and it has to do with vacations. Man, there's nothing like a vacation. Some of you, you're ready for a vacation already, aren't you? Man, there's nothing like a vacation, particularly the end destination. Maybe that's the Grand Canyon, or maybe that's Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Maybe it's a foliage trip to the northeast during the fall to watch the leaves turn. Or maybe it's the beaches of Destin, Florida. Or the mountains of the Rockies where you can experience some snow and some skiing. Vacations and destinations are awesome. But the road trip getting there sometimes is a different story. How many of us have Laughed chuckles of identification with Chevy Chase's character, Clark Griswold, as he's taken his family on several road trip vacations. Certainly irreverent, but nonetheless funny is in the first movie where they strap Grandma to the top of the car. I know it's not right, but it's funny. I don't care who you are. Now, one of the most trying experiences of road trip without question is the inability of the children in the back seat to stay calm. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up as a kid, there were four kids and mom and dad and we had one of those wood paneled station wagons and we would take road trips together, mom and dad in the front and all four kids crammed into the back and kids, I know it's hard to believe, but there were no televisions and no video games and we would wiggle, we would get into each other's space, we would touch each other, we would argue, and not too long into the trip, we would say to our dad, are we there yet? And this aggravated my parents, our wiggling and arguing and asking of questions, and they would start off every road trip by pulling their hand to the back and smacking on us. (laughs) But eventually, my dad would blow a gasket, and he would finally say, maybe you've heard this phrase, If you kids don't stop fighting, I'm going to turn this car around and go back home. How many of you heard that before? I have to be honest with you. I never told this to my dad when I was a kid, but it would have helped him if he actually had done it at least one time because we didn't believe him. Now, uh, we have four children, Roseanne and I do, and we don't experience these kinds of aggravations on the road because our children are preacher's kids. But I seek to identify with the trouble that you experience and try to minister to you in it. I'm joking. But probably greater than the inability of kids to handle a road trip is when the driver in the front seat takes a wrong turn and takes everyone on a detour. This happened to Roseanne and I a number of years ago. Believe it or not, we were in San Antonio driving uh, back to Fort Worth. And I'd had a pretty busy weekend, so I started off driving. And when we were on the road, I pulled over and I turned over the wheel to Roseanne so I could take a nap. And I said to her, all you have to do is stay on this one interstate, and it'll take us right into Fort Worth. That's pretty simple, don't you say? (laughs) So I get into the passenger seat, and she's in the driver's seat. And we drive down the road, and I'm fast asleep. And a couple of hours later, she wakes me up and says... Should we be coming to Houston now? <laughs> how hard can this be, folks? Now, I'm normally a nice guy. But this pushed my button. And this challenged my ability to contain my sin nature, and I let her have it. I let her know how the how the cow ate the cabbage. I told her, how hard could this be, Roseanne, for crying out loud? This experience cost us an additional three hours, and so we pulled over to the side of the road, and I took over driving. And on our way back, I discovered that the place where we made the wrong turn, I was actually the one driving. (laughs) I hate when that happens. (laughs) I hate when that happens. But of course, we don't have problems with directions anymore because now we have GPS, Global Positioning Systems. We have one, actually, Roseanne and I don't have one, but uh, one of our boys has one and he lets us borrow it when we go on long road trips. And uh, we've named uh, our gal who talks to us, uh, we've named her Karen. I don't know what you've named yours, if you have one, but we've named her Karen. And we've given her, by choice, an Australian accent. And it's a beautiful accent, and she's really quite the lovely gal. She tells us in Australian accent when to turn right and when to turn left. It's really a lovely gal. But every now and then, she'll tell us to turn right. And I have this hunch that turning left will get us there faster. When I make the left turn, she doesn't say, I told you right, you idiot. She simply says... Recalculating. (laughs) Well, today we've come to chapter 6 of the story. And the children of Israel are on a road trip. They're on a road trip. Their end destination is the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to give to them, listen to this, 650 years earlier to a man named Abraham now if you brought your story book if you're here at Oak Hills you brought your story book or Bible I want you to hold it up so I can see it I know some of you are visiting today excellent I want you to turn to chapter 6 as we dive in and as you turn to chapter 6 of the story or numbers 11 and 12 in your Bible we discover that Moses is the driver and the children of Israel are in the back seat. they're driving across the desert of Sinai on their way to the fertile land of Canaan, a place the Bible says is flowing with milk and honey. It would sort of like uh, be driving across the, the, uh, West Texas on your way to the Rocky Mountains, if you would. Moses, instead of having four kids in the back seat, the Bible tells us that he has somewhere between one and three million kids in the back seat. This experience will be like herding cats. The kids of Israel start getting a little restless early on in the journey. They start fighting and complaining in the back seat, if you would. Three instances are recorded of their complaints in the story on page 57 and 58 and 59, or Numbers 11 and 12. The first instance is just the complaining about their general overall hardships. The second instance, they are complaining about their food... Now, you may recall that they're in the desert and that God is providing them miraculously with manna which falls from the sky every single day to provide for them food during the desert. Fried manna, boiled manna, manna gumbo, manna sandwiches. They've done everything they possibly can do with this little resin and they're sick of it. And so they complain on page 58 of the story. And finally, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother, they get in on the action with a little backseat driver complaining. Why does Moses get to drive all the time? Why does God only speak to Moses? Why doesn't he speak to us? So they're complaining. On all three occasions, the story tells us that God pulls the car over and he disciplines them. These three instances are not, only, are not the only ones, however. These are just the three that are recorded in the story. If you look on page 62 of the story, or Numbers 14, we see that there are some ten outbreaks of juvenile behavior from the children of Israel as they're journeying across the desert. Now, it's one thing for the kids to complain in the back seat. It's another thing altogether when the driver makes a wrong turn. And that's what happens on page 60 of the story, or Numbers 13, 1 through 2. The Lord says to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Now, these 12 leaders are drivers for their families, not only their immediate family, but their extended family, Not only their extended family, but really the whole tribe that they represent. They are drivers. They are to go out ahead of all of the Israelites to the land of Canaan, to the north, to explore the land, the final destination, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that that God already promised to give to them. Now remember, it's been 400 plus years since any Israelite, any Hebrew, has actually seen the land of Canaan. Now, on the bottom of page 60 of the story, or Numbers chapter 13 and verse 25, we are told that they're gone for a total of 40 days exploring the land of Canaan, and they finally make it back and give their report to Moses. What they say to Moses is this. They tell him that the land is awesome. It is, in fact, flowing with milk and honey. But there's a problem. There's numerous numerous people in the land, and they're giants. And if we try to take their land, they're going to beat us up bad. We can't go. It tells us on page 61 of the story, or Numbers 13 and verse 30, that Caleb, who was one of the 12 who explored the land, silenced the people before Moses and spoke up and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. The story tells us that only Joshua sided with Caleb of the other 11 men. As a matter of fact, the other 10 men not only said no way, but it says to us in the story that they spread a bad report amongst the camp and convinced the people that it was not a good idea. So Moses gathers all the people of Israel together, and it says he tears his clothes in frustration, something I don't recall my dad ever doing. Should have tried it, maybe. Would have worked for me. And he pleads with them at the bottom of page 61 or Numbers chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now how did the people of Israel respond to this impassioned speech? It tells us in Numbers 14.10 or page 60 of the story that the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Now whenever I'm giving a speech and people start throwing rocks up like this, I know that the speech hasn't gone so well. Now, if you have your copy of the story, I want you to turn to the opening map, and we have been making markings in this map, not only going through the story chronologically, but also taking a geographical journey through the story, and if you're, if you're doing this, you should have a, a drawing for Moses and the children of Israel leaving Egypt into the Sinai Desert right here. Now what I want you to do is I want you to uh, take uh, your pen or pencil, and I want you to move them up north to this place called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. It is here at Kadesh that we are told in the story that the 12 leaders left to spy out the land. This is where the nation of Israel, listen to this, this is where the nation of Israel in Kadesh decided not to trust in God's strength over the giants of Canaan. This is where they made their wrong turn. God is operating from his own GPS, God-positioning system. He can see the big picture from the beginning to the end, but the people of Israel have a hunch. Instead of going left and to the north, they decide not to do it. So on page 62 of the story, God simply says back to them, recalculating, Because of their lack of trust in God, God is going to have them make a hard right back down south again along the Red Sea, back deep into the wilderness. Take your map again, and now I want you to take uh, the, the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea and have them take a hard right down the right finger of the Red Sea, back deep into the wilderness. To Houston, if you would. And here's what God says to them on page 62, or Numbers chapter 14, verses 28 through 34. As surely as I live, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you 20 years old or more who was counted in the senses and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to make your home except Caleb and Joshua. I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year, for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins. And know what it is like to have me against you. Can you imagine hearing those words from God? You're going to learn what it's like. You're going to feel what it's like to have me against you. The late Christian singer Keith Green paraphrased God's words in a song that went like this. Take another lap around Mount Sinai until you learn your lesson." A 40-year detour. Wow. Here's what captured my attention. Not only did their lack of trust in God's power cost them, the parents, entrance into the land, but they drug their children into it as well. It says that their children will suffer for their choice. Instead of their children growing up in their own home, their own backyard in a land that belongs to them, a land flowing with milk and honey, they're going to to spend their entire childhood and beyond as nomads, as wanderers in the wilderness. You know, the Bible teaches us that we go through wilderness experiences for several reasons. First, sometimes God places us in the wilderness for a reason. He places us in the wilderness to test us and to train us, and to teach us, usually on the heels of something that's going to happen great to us. And he wants us to know that before we enter into that which is great, he wants to know that we trust him when he enters us into that. Some of you are in that wilderness experience right now. And God wants you to trust him. Sometimes we're in the wilderness experience because we we have made that choice, or at least we have extended the time that we stay in the wilderness. Maybe God only wanted us to be in the wilderness for this long, but we've extended it to this length because we have made the choice. And sometimes we're in the wilderness because someone who was in the driver's seat of our lives made a decision, and we're in the wilderness because of them. On page 63 of the story, the editors of this storybook say, The story picks up again nearly 40 years later. The Israelites return to Kadesh. They are right back where they started 40 years ago, except this time all those 20 years and older have died in the wilderness. They're right back to where they started 40 years before in, at Kadesh Barnea. Man, do I know what that feels like. Except this time, all those 20 years and older have died in the wilderness. Moses leads the people from Kadesh, Barnea, the Bible tells us, the story tells us, to a place between Moab and Aram. I want you to take out your story again and have Moses leading the people now back up to Kadesh, Barnea, and then up on the east side of Jerusalem, which is Canaan, somewhere between Moab and Aram. Go ahead and draw that. And you might even want to put a little triangle representing a mountain, and the mountain is called Mount Nebo, Mount Nebo. We learn in the story this week, we're not going to cover much of it, but we learn in the story that Moses is not going to be allowed to enter the land himself because of a lack of trust in God that he displayed before the children of Israel. And the Bible tells us that he will die on Mount Nebo just east of Canaan. But the story also tells us that God is gracious to him, even in Moses' disobedience. Moses is 120 years old. And it says at the end of his life, God did two things for him. He preserved his strength, so he had the strength to climb Mount Nebo. And number two, he preserved his eyesight at the age of 120 because God was going to give him a full glimpse of the land. It says that Moses was going to be able to see the land flowing with milk and honey that the children of Israel would now enter into all the way through to the Mediterranean Sea. But before he heads up to the mountain, he has a final speech to deliver to the children of Israel. Now you may remember at the beginning of the story with Moses that he tried to get out of this assignment of leading the children of Israel claiming that he doesn't speak very well. Well, apparently he's gotten better because the story editors call this his grand valedictory speech. It's a very moving talk. There are a number of things that struck a deep chord with me in his message to them, his final message to them, and I hope that you have read it, you've studied it with your small group, you've talked about it as a family, but there's one thing that I would like to bring out. Moses gathered this new generation of Israelites around him, And he tells them that they have a fresh opportunity to trust God, unlike their parents. And that they need to recognize that God is leading them with the ultimate GPS, the God-positioning system, and that he can be trusted. He tells them that they have a choice to make on whether or not they're going to take the turns that God instructs them to take. And he also tells them that they must keep in mind that they're not in the car alone. That in the backseat are their children who are going to be affected by their decision, positively or negatively, just like they experienced when their parents made their decision not to trust God. What I want to do is read a portion of that speech to you. It's on page 70 of the story. Go ahead and turn there, or Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, beginning uh, a little bit after verse 11 on into verse 20. I'm going to begin about three paragraphs down. Moses says to the children of Israel, this next generation, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him and to keep His commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase... And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if you are, not, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Now this final paragraph, I want you to read out loud with me. We're going to put it on the screen, okay? Let's read it together, all right? This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to His voice and hold fast to Him for the Lord is your life and He will give you many years in the land He swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now we're gonna have to wait till next week chapter 7 to see what decision the Israelites made but right now we need to turn our attention to a decision that God is asking us to make in this chapter of our life we need to turn our attention to what God is calling out of us in this ancient story that's applicable to us today so I'm gonna invite you to just to close your storybooks and close your Bibles and give me your attention. The Bible teaches us that the Christian life is like a road trip. And God wants to lead you and I every single step of the way from his GPS, his God positioning system. You see, God sees the whole picture from the beginning to the end. And he wants the best for us. He certainly wants us to reach the end destination. But listen to this. He also wants us to enjoy the journey. But in order to do that, we must trust Him. So when the divine GPS tells us, calls out for us to go to the left, we must turn. When the divine GPS tells us to go to the right, we must go. When God says to us, we must stop, we must dead in our tracks. When God says we must go faster, we must go faster. Put the pedal to the metal. When God tells to us, He wants us to break the barrier down in front of us, no matter how big and how bad it is, we need to bust through that barrier like an episode out of Starchky and Hutch. You know, just break through it in faith. We also need to be reminded that whatever choice we make, there are others in the car with us. They will experience the blessings of our good decisions and they will experience the pain of our destructive decisions as we've seen in the story today. So I ask you the question, what, story, what decision are you making today? The application of this ancient chapter 6 is as ripe for us today as it was then. When you came in today, you received a little insert in your program called the Community Covenant. I'm going to ask you to pull that out right now, if you would. A Community Covenant. This basically takes the essence of Moses' speech and it puts us before us today to make a decision. And in this decision, not only are we being invited to sign it, but we're invited to go to the other people who are in the car with us to the journey of life and go through this with them and let them know that today you're making a commitment, a covenant with them to choose life, to choose prosperity, to listen to the voice of God and have them sign it as well. And then when you're done, if you make this commitment, I invite you to take this little... Co- community covenant and put it in your story as, a, as a, uh, of a sign of not only going through the story so that you can gain better understanding in your head, but gain a heart for applying the Word of God to your very life. What decision are you going to make today, church? I don't know about the decision you're going to make, but I know the decision I'm going to make, and if it's okay with you, I'd like to make it in front of you. Is that okay? And I'd also like to make it in front of the, some of the people that are in the car with me. My wife, Roseanne, and two of my boys are home from college, David and Stephen. Do you mind walking them up to the stage? Come on up, boys. This is Roseanne, my lovely wife, this December of 27 years. And this is... Um, This is uh, our son, David, who's a junior at Baylor University, and our son, Stephen, who's a freshman at uh, Baylor University. They're on fall break and came to see mom and dad eat some good food and get their clothes washed, (laughs) which is all right with us. I wanted to say to them in your presence, I want to say to you, Roseanne, to David, to Stephen, to Austin, our youngest, and to Jennifer, our oldest, and yes, even my new son-in-law, Desmond. <laughs> I realize that uh, God has given me a choice today to follow him and to listen to his voice. And I realize that he has put me in the car with you and that I'm driving. I'm driving. And I just want you to know that I realize that the decisions that I make every day affect you as well. And I know God wants to put you in the wilderness every now and then, but I don't want to be the one responsible for keeping you there because of my lack of trust in the power of God when he tells me to turn right or to turn left, to stop or go faster. So today I make a covenant with my community that I will choose life and prosperity. I will love the Lord my God. I will walk in obedience to him. I will keep his commands, decrees, and laws. I choose to live and increase and to receive the blessings of God. And I choose to trust in God and in his leadership. And I'm going to sign this before you. And then I'm going to invite you to sign it as witnesses. If you don't mind. A little doctor's signature there, son. That's good. <laughs> That's like a Warren Buffett signature there. I'm going to have places to live when I retire. <laughs> Church, now I ask you you have a choice before you today a choice of life, death, or a choice of blessing or cursings. And I urge you as your minister, to choose life, so that you and your children may live, that you will love the Lord your God. Listen to him and hold fast to him, because as Moses said, the Lord is your life. Amen?